now, live from beautiful Myrtleby, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes! It's me! It's me! You've made it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Keep clapping. Clap for the miracle. How would we know you wanted the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen, and I am so happy to have you on for this very special Masters of Debate LNC Chair Edition of My Fellow Americans. In a few moments, we'll have three men come on who will come on to fight to climb over the charred bodies of the people who dared stand against them and sit atop the throne that is the Libertarian National Committee Chairmanship. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Go to anchor.fm. Check us out there for all your podcasting uh, apps. Uh, Twitter, we're on Periscope, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Play. Go to float.app. Lose all of these other platforms and just go to float.app. Anyway, it's the best social media platform out there. Go to float.app slash muddywatersmedia. Check us out there. We are everywhere, anywhere on the internet that you could possibly want to be entertained for even a brief amount of time. Go go there and find Muddy Waters Media. And when you go there, uh, be sure to find us on all the platforms. Like us, follow us, five-star review us. If there's a bell involved that you have to hit, hit the bell. That would be YouTube. And I think one other one. Be sure to share this video right now. The last thing that any of us here want, including you, is for even your closest loved ones to miss out on an hours-long Libertarian podcast on a Thursday evening. So be sure to share this. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This program is brought to you by the Libertarian Dad Bod Calendar. Shown there is Mr. April. Just a sexy man right there. Uh... And, uh, uh, in fact, one of our guests is actually Mr. October, I believe. Uh, but be sure to, if you want to see more sexy libertarian men hanging from your, I guess, fridge, mm-hmm. wherever you would hang sexy libertarian men in your home, uh, be sure to go to Libertarian Dad Bod, and for only $17, you can have one yourself. This program is also brought to you by our official sponsor, the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest-growing caucus by percentage over the last week in the Libertarian Party. The Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, we care about liberty, and we care about waffles, and we are taking over the Libertarian Party. The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud, joedaviemusic.bandcamp, and buy all of his music. You can get his entire discography for like 15 bucks. So be sure to do that. I'd like to thank Kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that I drink on this and every episode of My Fellow Americans, Bulubanaka. That is delicious and purified. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Guys, as I said earlier, tonight is a special night because tonight the three declared candidates for the position of chair of the Libertarian Party are coming here to duke it out in a battle of wits. Who will be crowned the master debater tonight? Well, that's up to you. At the end of the debate, be sure to comment with the name of who you thought won, and we will tally that and release the results for tomorrow tonight so that we can say for certain who was the master of this debate. So then, let's get started right now. Our first, that's not him, our first debater tonight is a successful businessman with a dual MBA in marketing and finance. He has spent the past decade working for a Fortune 500 companies as a fixer 
and he is currently the president of a manufacturing company in Oklahoma. He is Mr. Todd Hagopian. Our second debater is currently the vice chair of the uh, Arizona Libertarian Party, a vice chair of the Arizona Libertarian Party, and has been serving uh, in the Arizona Libertarian Party in officer roles since 2016. He also served as chair of Outright Libertarians for four years, tripling membership and quadrupling fundraising while working to found or co-found several more of the LP's most active and successful caucuses. He is Mr. Mike Shipley. And finally, our third debater is an at-large representative of the Libertarian National Committee, an at-large rep of the Libertarian Party of California, treasurer of the Libertarian Party of Contra Costa County, I hope I said that right, and one of the founders of Think Liberty. He ran for chair in 2018. Now he's running again, and this time it's personal. He is Mr. Joshua Smith. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us, Mike. Thanks for having us here. Okay, great. So before we get started, let me explain the format for you and our viewers at home. This is the format rules of the Masters of Debate series. First, each of you will be given two minutes to give an opening statement. And then after that, I, I will ask you five of my special moderator questions, questions from me, the moderator. You will each be given two minutes to answer. Uh, if you mention one of the other debaters, they will have one minute to respond to what you said. Uh, after that, uh, each of you will be given a chance to ask the other two debaters a question, and they will have two minutes each to answer. And then uh, I will, uh, after that, I will present uh, some questions that we have from followers and commenters. And the way we'll be doing that is you will have up to three minutes to debate each question out in kind of a discussion-style format. I, as moderator, will make sure that everyone gets at least some time to talk. Uh, and then finally... Each of you will be given two minutes to give your closing remarks, and then our lovely, beautiful, brilliant, and just amazingly talented viewing audience will comment with who they thought has won the title of Master Debater. I will, of course, be keeping time by using this Muddied Waters Media brand egg timer, which you lovely folks at home can have for your kitchen or podcast for the low, low price of $49.99. Just send your payment via PayPal to muddywatersmedia at gmail.com and give us your address and we will literally mail you an egg timer with a sticker on it if you want it. Uh, gentlemen, this is a libertarian debate and as such, we will not tolerate any violations of the non-aggression principle. Any such violations will be met with whatever level of defensive violence is necessary up to and including nuclear weapons. If you choose to strip naked during this debate, I will not be sharing any of the ad revenue with you. Now, so if we're agreed to those terms, we can get started, uh, and we will start with the opening statement. We will start with whomever is able to answer an obscure trivia question that I randomly selected from the internet. The first one to answer it correctly goes first, followed by the person whose last name is next in the alphabet, and we will go on in that order moving forward from then on, to be fair. So here is the question. Do not answer it yet. What was the original purpose of Mountain Dew? The original purpose of Mountain Dew. Good luck. Clean off oxidization. No. No. (laughs) Do you have the most caffeine of any soda? No. We're not going to okay. be able to answer. All that. right. Okay. So I anticipated this, believe it or not. So I have the next question. Hopefully, we get we do a little bit better with this one. When, what year did the Great Molasses Flood happen? Year of the Great 
molasses flood again good luck <laughs> you could literally just say a number 1959 okay that's your answer Todd what's your answer 1911 Mike what is your answer 1912 okay <laughs> Mike is uh, one because it was 1919 great molasses oh. flood 1919 <laughs> uh, it's that price is right strategy it is I see but then I so and I'm not sure how price is right works because then I think Josh because he went over or something I, anyway Mike got closest that's how we're doing it I decided that executive decision so so we will start with Mike with the opening statements Mike, please start now. All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank Spike for putting this together and thank my uh, colleagues for being here to debate. Um, as you mentioned in my introduction, I've been active since 2007. I am a lifetime member of this party. And I'm running because I really believe that I'm truly the best candidate to take advantage of this political moment for the party. So what we're seeing in mainstream politics is this leftward shift. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a command and control tax and spend economy. Uh, if the narratives that people are hearing are limited to democratic socialism and, and things further left, that's really problematic. And if we know that there are libertarian narratives that can resonate with voters who are looking for something like that, uh, and we don't even have to change who we are to meet that need. Uh, I think that we should do that. So who better than someone who has done a lot of work in that area already? A lot of work in that area so already. So I'm running because I'd so like to connect with young people and expand on bottom and expand on bottom and your vote in the coming months. Your vote in the coming months. Okay, thank you. And so the next in order would be Joshua, and we are having some problems with the Muddy Waters Media brand Egg Timer. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to keep track of time do you have a do you have a do you have do you have a phone i do uh and i'm not sure what's happening right now would be probably has a time stopwatch on it okay so uh joshua whenever you're ready go ahead awesome and uh, i'll echo that sentiment thank you so much spike and and muddy waters of freedom for having us uh thanks to my competitors i'm extremely happy to see a robust field of people that are interested in helping to lead the party. And all of us, I believe, have our own unique merits. Uh, for me, I believe that aside from being involved in something like 11 committees, including local, state, and national, I think that I've proven myself to be an inspirational grassroots figure. Uh, I'm the current leading recruiter on the Libertarian National Committee. Uh, I've continued to travel around the, the country working with candidates and affiliates to help improve this party at every level, including recruiting hundreds of new activists to state or national or both. Uh, I, I never get tired of hearing state leaders tell me that they have new members who mentioned me as an inspiration. I think that's really, really good. Um, while running for chair in 2018, I made sure that I put a huge emphasis on membership and fundraising. I think those are two of the most important things that this party can focus on. Uh, and uh, those are the things that continue the ballot access fight around the country. They get ourselves new volunteers. And quite frankly, it's how we keep uh, the, the heater blowing and, and the AC going at the national headquarters, if you're familiar with what's going on there right now. Um, I was told last year that I seemed like a good candidate, but I didn't have the experience people were looking for. And at that time, I had only been a regional rep for the Libertarian Party of Washington. Uh, after losing the chair election and becoming uh, at-large last year, I got involved with everything I was physically able to, including chairing an extremely active group 
on the affiliate support committee. I put in the work that I promised last year, and I believe that it, you know the results are starting to show that. Um, so if you can just wrap up a little, every yeah. time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah just, it's okay. So just yeah, I, you know, I, I I've I've gone out. I put in the work that I said I was going to put in last year uh, while while spending time on the board, and and that's why I think that I'm I'm the, the best person to chair this party going forward. Okay, uh, and then finally, Todd. It is your turn to give your opening statement. Fantastic. Well, I'm Todd Agopian. Some of you may know me as the Libertarian in Chief on Twitter. Um, I am really excited to be here today with some great candidates. I think we all bring very unique resumes to the table, uh, and and it's going to be a fun debate. So my resume is basically business. I have spent the last 10 years turning around companies. I look at um, companies that are, that are uh, struggling. And I try to come up with a strategy, um, figure out what's wrong, and sell that strategy to members, employees, and leadership, and then fix the company. Uh, and what I saw in the Libertarian Party in 2016 is a huge, enormous opportunity to make gains. And we did. We, we got a lot of votes. We raised a lot of money. Um, but over the next two years, we had a lot of trouble and, and essentially fell apart from a membership standpoint, from a financial standpoint. And at that point, I started looking at it saying, do I have the skill set necessary to come in and help this party turn around? So my planks are professionalize the party, create a core brand message, and win local elections. And I believe I have a plan to do that. And I'm going to use my business um, turnaround experience to really dive into the PL and try to figure out how we can advance this party forward over the next two years. And then hand it off to somebody who has the activism experience to take us to the next level. But the turnaround experience requires a very specific skill set, and that's what I'll be trying to convey today. Okay, very good. Gentlemen, thank you. That was the opening statement. And now we will begin with the moderator questions. I, Spike Cohen, am the moderator, and these are my questions. We will start with Joshua and then go from Joshua to Todd to Mike. Um, so here is the first question. Josh? We all know the old adage, organizing libertarians is a bit like herding cats. There are some major rifts in the party between anarchists uh, uh, and minarchists and constitutionalists, uh, between radicals and pragmatists, between capitalists and socialists, between Waffle House and Denny's. Waffle House is correct. <laughs> Waffle House is correct. Denny's is wrong. We'll get into that later. As chair... How would you work to unify the Libertarian Party as much as humanly possible? Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I believe that unity is created by a party working together. I firmly believe that a lot of our current divisiveness has started from the top down, and setting an example at the highest echelon of leadership can fix a lot of those problems. Um, I've also been guilty in the past of being divisive and taking arguments a bit too far, but I learned and I had to humble myself and take big doses of my own medicine to realize that the people who share my causes are not my enemy and that working together creates way more success than turning our swords inwards. So I believe focused messaging will help heal some of those divides. Uh, freedom is a really messy thing and there's issues that we just aren't all going to get together and sing Kumbaya on. Um, but using that, the messages that we do agree on and crafting that message outward is going to bring a lot more people together and bring more out, outsiders to our cause. Uh, I believe, you know, with every ounce of my being that we can come together and work on a lot of issues uh, without this constant fight. Um, and so, you know, if we can hook somebody with a message of anti-war 
and then the party activists can segue that into a discussion on free market healthcare, I think that messaging is useful. But it's also unifying and educating without eating our own. So I like that. I want to see more of that. And I believe that that example can be set at the very top and, and trickle down. And I'll yield the rest of my time. Okay. Uh, Todd, thoughts on unifying a party that seems just really just doesn't like unifying? Go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, so the very first thing I'd say is that we are not uh, overly unique in this in this standpoint. If you look at the Democrats, they have the Socialist Democrats, they have the Conservative Democrats, they even have, uh, for the first time in a long time, an anti-war Democrat. So they're, they're, every party has these different sectors in it. What makes us unique is we try to define ourselves as anarchists or minarchists or um, Republican light or blue dog or all this stuff. Um, what we need to do, to Josh's point, is get a very targeted messaging. Everybody belongs. But let's figure out what we can all agree on. Something along the lines of, you know, we all want dramatic military reform, less war or no war. We all want dramatic criminal justice reform, no crimes without victims. We all want dramatic fiscal reform, you know, less taxes, less spending. Let's figure out that brand that we can all agree on and rally around that. That way we can have these primaries where we debate the issues, but in the end, we come back together around a brand. Everybody can tell you what a Republican is. Therefore, lower taxes, which puts more money in your pocket and raises the economy and it's good for everybody. Democrats are for minority rights and women's rights and, and everybody pays their fair share. Is that really what happens? No, but everybody knows the brand. And at the end of the day, they rally around that brand and put aside their differences in the end. And that's what we need to do. Okay. And then uh, Mike, thoughts on unifying the party? Two words, Spike, bot immunity. So if you haven't heard of this, I don't know how you couldn't have heard of it, but uh, it's basically the idea that everybody in the bottom half of the political compass has a libertarian narrative to offer and belongs under the libertarian big tent. So uh, as a matter of fact, the two-year anniversary of bottom unity is just coming up next week. And if you think about how far we've come in just two years, it really has been amazing. Uh, all we really need to do is build on and expand on that and just really explore the full scope of our platform. And I, it's really impossible to understate uh, the power of this message. Um, two years ago, ANCAPs and LibSox used to hate each other. The Radicals and the Prags used to hate each other. I'm not saying there's not still tension, but a lot more often what we find is that people actually pop up in comment threads to defend one another, to defend one another's right to speak a narrative that sounds different than their own. So, uh, and this kind of reflects something that I've been saying for a long time. Unif unity is not uniformity, right? So, like, we don't all have to think or say the same thing. We're united by a single principle, the non-aggression principle. And uh, beyond that, the intellectual diversity that we exhibit is a strength. And part of our message is that we use our speech itself as the means of persuading one another. Like, free speech doesn't sound like, uh, you know, silence. It sounds like speech. And that's why a lot of times you'll see a lot of dialogue going on. And I sometimes feel like it's a little dismissive to just call that infighting when what's really going on is that we're all very passionate and we all want to live in a world set free. And that vision is very exciting. And so we get excited and we talk about it and we should be talking about it. So 
for me, I just feel like leaning into that unity vibe that has been emerges, emerging and just rolling forward with it and letting it unfold and become something even more beautiful. Very good. Very good, guys. So that was uh, question one. And then now here is question two. And uh, Todd, you will be starting on this. Um, we actually saw how one of these riffs turned out recently in the party with what I'm calling Maj Torgate. Uh, as you know, Maj, the founder of Black Guns Matter, uh, had been invited to be the keynote speaker at last at uh, next year's national convention in Austin. Uh, as a result of some uh, anti-immigrant and anti-LGBT talk, uh, as well as a, a appearance of insulting a major donor to the party, uh, Maj was uninvited. There's some uh, scandal as to how that happened exactly. Um, but this entire situation has exposed a major point of contention, mo- actually multiple major points of contention within the party. What is your opinion of how this whole thing went down? How would you handle, have handled it differently, if at all? Uh, and then broadly speaking, how anti-libertarian do you think someone's opinions can be before they should not any longer be considered for a prominent role within the party? Sure. No, it's a great question. And, and after that all went down, um, I got on the phone with Maj and we talked, talked it through. And I, I listened to his part of the story, understood where he was coming from, got exactly how it went down um, in his eyes over the entire campaign and then right at the end. Uh, and I think that's the important part first, is to listen to what's happening. Um, here's the deal. This goes back to professionalizing the party, right? Uh, if we, I mean, Maj didn't change from the beginning of the campaign to the end. He was the same guy. Uh, so if we if we didn't do our due diligence or if we if we liked him and then and then didn't like some of the things he said, you know, shame on us for for going that route. Now, are we allowed to take a speakership away from somebody who says something that's inherently anti-libertarian? Yes. Okay. Yes, you're allowed to do that. Um, however, I believe he was chosen because he was slightly, you know, um, a firebrand, right? It was one of the reasons we picked him. So, so should we have taken it away? Maybe. Should we have taken it away without a vote and, and very publicly and, and not re- had the national committee respond immediately? No, that should not have happened. Um, and, and frankly, coming from business in a situation that's handled that poorly, that out in the public, if somebody offers their resignation, I take it. Um, now, how often or how, how off-brand do you have to be before we kick you out of the party? I don't believe in kicking people out of the party. It's more, more of should he have been the national speaker? And I, right. I think that the right decision was probably made in the extremely wrong way. Uh, but I'm excited about the person we replaced it with. I think that was a fantastic choice and the best possible, you know, solution in the end. Um, but but I like Maj and I, I feel bad for how it went down. I think that, that he was done wrong. You just did almost exactly two minutes. I just want to applaud you for that. Um, <laughs> and uh, okay, so, okay, Mike, your turn. Thoughts on uh, Maj Gate. Thanks, Spike. So, you know, the day that Maj announced that he had left the party and then we later found out that he had been disinvited that morning, um, my impulse immediately actually, and you would have thought, yay, we won or whatever. Uh, But actually, I immediately thought, wait a minute. Okay, somebody just basically got chewed up and spit out. And each one of us should probably take personal responsibility for taking a look at the role that we played in that. 
Um, and when I did that, I reached some uncomfortable conclusions, right? Because what really happened here is that Maj ended up becoming a symbol for a bigger problem, right? Minorities are disproportionately underrepresented in this party, and we all feel that, and we all want to do something about it. And that's a systemic issue that needs to be like looked at and deeply interrogated to figure out why it's like that and how we can work together to overcome it. And uh, when I looked at it in that light, I realized that the convention committee had, you know, this opportunity to platform somebody, and um, Maj kind of got swept into that as a symbol for a problem that he could never have solved for it. It wasn't his problem to solve. It's our problem and it was everyone's problem and you know then unfortunately he ended up quitting over it because the next thing you know these problematic tweets are coming out and then now he's the target of the call out and the pushback and the and the entire thing was basically a giant ugly piece of systemic racism in front of all of our faces and that is not okay so the reality is that there's no easy fix that the chair can implement. Um, by the time all that was unfolding, it was too late because if you want to dismantle systemic racism in your institution, you have to do the groundwork over time. I agree with Mr. Hagopian. We need to listen to people, the experience can, that they're having. You've gone over. So that, yeah, if you can just wrap up a little bit, sorry. I'll just say the chair's not an authority. They're an advocate. Uh, but there are lots of ways to weaponize that privilege to achieve the change we need over time. Okay, very good. And then, Josh, your thoughts on Majgate. Yeah, I'm surprised how much I align with Shipley here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I, I'm not going to call everyone involved racist, but I will say I think the Moss situation was a very, very rough one, and it was truly handled poorly all the way around. Uh, I'm not. I'm going to clarify that I'm not a big fan of the things that Maj has said. Um, some of the tweets I've seen, or the attitudes towards our donors, but I do believe that the Pitchfork Caucus came out in full effect. Um, you know, myself having grown up in the hood, I understand that this is the speech that's given there always. They don't play PC politics in the hood, and if anyone tried, they'd probably get laughed or mocked all the way back to their middle to upper class neighborhoods that they came from. So, again, I'm not condoning that kind of speech, but I believe a lot of people who were the very loudest about this situation have led a somewhat different life than Maj or myself. And that life is not the reality for people like Maj and where Maj is from. So um, I really think we should have tried to be a little more understanding. I think there could have been more peace brokering, especially from our chair. Um Maj can do a lot of really great things in communities that we have historically been very bad at reaching, plain and simple. So I, 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 there's not much I could have done uh, as chair. You know, we don't have we don't have the right as chair to kick people out of the party. Um, but I, I would like to see a lot more peace brokering coming from the chair. Uh, and I also want to publicly state, um, I, I believe Daniel Hayes unilaterally told Maj he was disinvited to purposely take the heat off the convention oversight committee. I, I believe that he knew the vote was going to go that way. And he decided to just take all the heat. You know, he's, he's a huge Maj supporter, like still. So anyways, like I said, I think it was handled badly on all sides. And as chair, I would hope to be able to be a unifying voice and it can kind of broker more peace on issues like this when I'm needed. Okay. Very good. 
I don't know if you guys are, are actually keeping count, but you have also done an amazing job of staying within two minutes for the most part. Uh, I don't think I'd be as good at that. Um, so, okay, so with the next question, uh, Mike, you will start. Uh, and the question is, this question was actually inspired by uh, the current chair, uh, Nick Sarwark's question to me. Um, as you more than likely know, the Libertarian Party was created in 1971 with the goal of ending the cult of the omnipotent state. That has not happened thus far. The LP has had some success in the local and state levels, but has never won an election on the federal level. Uh, what would you? What do you think you could do differently or better than previous chairs in order to uh, for the LP to gain to achieve that goal? Thanks, Spike. That's a great question. So the first thing I want to say is that we are not an idea farm for the old parties. And what I mean by that is that we're watching them pick up things that we've been promoting for years, sex workers, transgender rights, queer liberation, uh, ending the drug war, right? These were really bold, forward-thinking ideas that our delegates placed in the platform and they fought to keep it in there. Time after time, people tried to chip away at the integrity of our platform and those delegates fought to keep those ideas. And despite that, leadership chose for our own good to fail to stand on that. And unfortunately, that inauthenticity over the years has led to a situation where we are now watching the progressive left steal our ideas and having to post things on our social media like that was our idea all along. Okay, yeah, the delegates, yeah. The membership wanted those things to be our ideas, but we hid them anyway. We failed to stand on them. So I think one of the greatest things that I could do as chair is to actually lead by example. What does it mean to own a bold idea and really run with it and fill it up with its full potential? So that's my answer. Okay, very good. And then, uh, Josh, thoughts on what you would do uh, better or differently than previous chairs to grow the party and hopefully win at the federal level? Oh, I I think the glaring differences are my messaging and my emphasis on membership. Last year during the debate, I I was told by our current chair that membership is a lagging indicator of success. And this year I've watched as increasing membership is helping do things like fix the heater at headquarters, help on ballot access issues, uh, pay new staff members who are focusing on development. So um, fundraising and membership need to be at the forefront of everything the chairman does, or, or I believe I would be failing as the chair. So um, as far as winning races, I believe switching the focus to developing candidates is extremely important. Uh, I, I'm extremely grateful to see more candidates running locally this year. I think that's great. Uh, if, if we learned nothing else from supervisor Jeff Hewitt, we should always keep with us that he won mayor first and he showed his community how his policies could enrich their lives. Uh, he, he could easily run for governor of California now, I believe, and have a real shot. Um, that's, you know, because he worked his way up, he put in his time to learn the jobs of those positions and he put together a stellar team that, you know, had the knowledge to get wins. I mean, we only have one boomer Shannon, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have leadership, uh, that are using innovative ways to train the next 20 boomer Shannons. So I think my emphasis, like I said, on, on membership and fundraising, um, and, and candidate development is really going to be, uh, a step in another great direction for the party. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And, uh, and Todd thoughts on, uh, what you would do uh, better or differently than previous chairs in, in, uh, growing the party and winning, uh, federal elections, hopefully. 
Sure. Well, first, I just want to say I think it's the wrong question. So we're not going to win the presidency before we win our first House seat. We're not going to win our first um, or sorry, first 20 House seats. We're not going to win our first 20 House seats till we win our first House seat. We're not going to win our first House seat till we win a thousand local elections. Uh, So the third plank of my platform is win local elections. And I want to give a shout out here to the folks I'm running against and Nick. We've done a really good job. Um, increasing local election wins. But I want to call out a situation I was involved in um, here in Oklahoma. So the the gubernatorial candidate last election ran uh, as a libertarian and got a few percent of the vote. The following year, he used everything that he learned and he ran in a city council race this year and got 60% of the vote and won against two other folks. What was the difference? It was a nonpartisan local election where he did not have to run against an R and a D. He just was able to use his experience running and and the same campaign tactics to go and win locally. And and the idea here is is we need to focus on nonpartisan races with low barriers to entry, where there's low signature counts, low dollars to file, and put professional people in there who can do their jobs every day and win these part-time positions and get libertarian ideas out there in the local level as that starts to build up like josh said it can go to the next level and the next level win some state houses then we can talk about federal but in order to talk about federal right now it's just irresponsible it's not what we should be focusing on we need to focus almost 100 percent of our time on winning at the local level okay very good before i continue clarification on my own rules i had said anytime someone uh gets mentioned they have uh, a minute to respond. I meant like in a derogatory or critical way, not like I agree with you. Because um, otherwise, I'm just giving you a minute to be like, oh, hey, thanks. Um, so we're not going to do that. Um, so this next question, we're going to start with Josh. Um, Josh, possibly the biggest problem that all politi- political parties, including the Libertarian Party faces, is youth engagement. Uh, young people are increasingly tuning out for understandable reasons. They see the political system as being hopelessly corrupt and unresponsive to their concerns and so a lot of them have chosen either to completely disengage or worse to worse yet to adhere themselves to some radical statist candidate who promises them the world what have you already done uh to engage youth in your current respective capacities and how would you expand upon that as chair yeah absolutely Again, I believe this all comes back to messaging. Honestly, the the youth the youth are mostly done with wars. You know, they're done with the drug wars and the failed criminal justice system. Regardless of what social media may say these days, the youth are pretty smart. You know, they have access to almost infinite uh, infinite information at the tips of their fingers every day. Uh, many are starting to show that they're ready for a third party. Now, whether that's the Libertarian Party or the DSA or whatever is debatable, but we have to stay consistent and not try to model ourselves after the old two parties, like Mike Shipley said. You know, if if they wanted the two old parties, they already have that option. It's been there for lots and lots of years. And in 2016, 61% of the population gave the two old parties the finger in the presidential election. So I say let's give them a better option by being consistent and principled and showing that we truly are ready to be the vehicle for hope and change that they seek. Very good. Uh, Todd, thoughts on uh, what you've done to in so far in your capacities to increase youth engagement in the Libertarian Party and how you would expand upon that as chair? 
Absolutely. So first of all, uh, youth engagement is huge. Uh, the Generation C is about 50% bigger than Generation Y and, and the Generation X before them. So as these generations get larger, their vote is going to be more and more important and engaging them uh, the way they want to be engaged is going to be extremely important. So first of all, what have I done? Um, you know, all I've done, I would say, is is engage people where they are. So about 50%, according to a poll that I ran, about 50% of the um, followers that I have are Gen Y or Gen Z. Okay, they're on Twitter. That's one of the places they use, Facebook. Every time I mention Facebook, they call me Boomer, right? That's, <laughs> that's what I get when I start talking about Facebook. It's not where they play anymore. Uh, they're on YouTube. They're on Twitter. They're on all these other um media so we need to talk to them where they are if you go to the youtube page right now for the libertarian party what do you see you see training videos on how to run for office if you look at the candidate section you see things on arvin bora okay we don't see local candidates that won we don't see even um our, our primetime presidential candidates it's not a channel that is geared for people who want to learn about the party it's a channel that's geared for internal um, internal views. Okay. We need to be talking to these people where they want to be talked to. And more importantly, we need to understand that it's a lot easier to turn a non-voter into a voter than it is to turn a Republican or a Democrat into a libertarian voter. So we need to be focusing on this and, and figuring out where to touch them and how to get them to understand that there is a option out there. This is what we stand for. And this is how you go and get the information to make your decision. Okay. And uh, thank you for that. And Mike, uh, ending with Mike, uh, you thoughts on what you've done so far to engage, increase youth engagement and what you would, how you would expand upon that as chair. Sure. Thank you. So I think what we're seeing among young people is that there's this drift away from the status quo. There's a very much a skepticism of the way that the older generations did things. And in fact, there was this uh, mainstream, I, I forget which, you know, Wall Street Journal or something, one of these um, mainstream opinion polls that had reported that young people were increasingly identifying as socialist. They're completely rejecting capitalism altogether. Right. Now, this is extremely alarming, right? Because the version of socialism they're getting introduced to is an authoritarian socialism that I find just terrifying, right? But the reality is that uh, when the market is demanding something, then if you don't meet that demand, then you miss the boat, right? So uh, there's a strong argument for us using the the existence of a libertarian socialist philosophy that's already compatible with our platform to meet that need, right? And so we actually have a proof of concept of this right now, right? So uh, Vermin Supreme identifies as a social anarchist. And he had actually, uh, we learned through, I don't remember how we found this out because I'm not on TikTok. And if you haven't heard of TikTok, um, if you're over 22, then you uh, will not know that it's a, you know, you go on there and you record videos and you share them with your friends. And um, it's, a, it's a sort of viral thing that the youth are using. Well, um, he had a hashtag on there that had 100,000 organic followers without even existing on the site. And within one month after Vermin joining, he has over 3 million. So I think that it demonstrates that there's a real power behind the kind of work that I've been doing in this party for years, and I like to continue doing it. Okay, very good. I, uh, 
I had not heard of TikTok until uh, I was uh, in an Airbnb with Vermin uh, earlier this month. And he told me about it and said, hey, let's make a video. And so we made the stupidest video I've ever done in my life, which is also the most viewed thing I've done in my entire life. So that's fun. So I got that going for me. Uh, so if anyone goes on, uh, well, it's on our page too, but don't look for it. It's terrible. Just forget that it ever happened. So this is my final question. Uh, and for my final question, I will ask each of you uh, your own question for you based on my taking the criticisms I've received from followers of each of you uh, and distilling them into one question to give you a chance to respond to it directly to them uh, publicly in your own words. These questions are rough for everyone. No one got a break in this. These questions did not pull any punches. They are not my opinion or the opinion of Muddied Waters Media. Please don't hate me. With that said, oh, and by the way, you also had, for every criticism you had, you had a ton of people that were supporting you. So this is not, like, it wasn't like all the followers said, oh, we hate them and there's what. But the ones who had specific criticisms of you, I distilled them down. Um, we're going to continue in order uh, and start with Todd. Um, Todd, you were active in the Republican Party up until last year. Uh, no one I spoke with had ever heard of you, uh, except for possibly a few tweets that they liked. Uh, and even some of your tweets seemed to denote you more uh, to them as more of a conservative than a libertarian. Uh, how can you lead a national party when you have never participated in it in any way? Yeah, so everything you just said is false. Um, so let me correct the record. <laughs> so I uh, was last a Republican at the beginning of 2016. Okay. I endorsed Austin Peterson prior to the primary in 2016, uh, joined the Ohio party in 2016, joined the National Party in 2017, joined the Oklahoma party in 2019 after I moved. Uh, so none of that is correct. Um, so and I have uh, been making libertarian tweets since far before I was a libertarian. But let's just say 2016, when I be when I officially changed uh, libertarian, I think you'll find very few uh, anti-libertarian tweets at any point since then. Um, so, but fair questioning on how long I've been a libertarian and how long, you know, uh, I've been involved in the party. So here's the deal. I took a long time to change my views. So in 2010, 2011, I saw Ron Paul and I saw Justin Amash and I didn't have this big aha moment that everybody talks about. Okay. It didn't just click for me. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's a very democratic place. I was a hardcore Republican. When you grow up in that scenario, you block, you punch back, you you defend your ideology, and that's all you learn how to do. It took me a lot of self-reflection on every single issue, going issue by issue, to slowly get to where I am now. And I believe that's an asset, not a liability. Um, that I that I was reflective about it and didn't just adopt 34 planks because I joined a new party. So there you go. Okay. And Mike, I love you. And uh, I feel bad because uh, you gave me that great uh, starting speech before we started. Uh, but here is uh, here is your question. Uh, Mike, many of my followers consider you to be mercurial, uh, quick to attack people who disagree with you even a little. Uh, and you also, as you've noted, you represent an ideological branch of libertarianism that isn't as large. Uh, the majority of members uh, actually reject it. Uh, how do you feel that you can unite a party when so many in it feel that you are one of its possible chief dividers? Well, 
You know, it's a fair criticism. And I think I come back to what I said earlier about bond immunity. Um, the fact that there's even a thing called pragdacious now, after earlier in my when I used to identify as borderline ANCAP myself, um, and, and back in those days, the the standard kind of like this very old, you know, it had been it was had gone on for so many years, it was just totally boring by that point, you know, between minarchy and anarchy. Should there be a state or should there not be a state, right? right? And that was like the longstanding divide and that, that battle line was drawn there. And that was the culture that I, I grew into as a libertarian. And, you know, the fact that having been kind of like partisan to the radical side in when that was a thing to a moment where the bottom immunity campaign has actually broken down that wall so completely that there are now people identifying openly as pragdacious and hashtagging their comments bottom immunity to defend one another's right to speak and literally joining the vermin supreme campaign i think that speaks a lot to the power of this narrative and and just this claiming of the intellectual diversity that we have as an asset and really owning that um, you know, the reality is, uh, totalitarianism is a terrifying thing. And the people that are reacting to the word socialism are right to react to, if they're imagining that, then yeah, I find that abhorrent as well. So, you know, I, I don't even have to like apologize for that, you know, but I do hope that people keep an open mind and just recognize that, Someone who built their reputation on kind of standing up for the principles of this party is only going to continue doing that. And the work that I've been doing is a continuance of that. So it is what it is. Okay. Very good. And Josh, you will always be my Joshy bear. Don't forget that. Um, your question is, uh, the criticisms that I got of you uh, were that you uh, were in a lot of projects that aren't really seeming to complete. seems like you kind of, I guess they're saying you start a lot of projects and aren't, aren't finishing them. Uh, you appear to be dealing with some personal issues in your life. Uh, many felt or were concerned as though you're doing this for finance reasons. Uh, what do you have to say to those who think that your campaign could potentially just be opportunism? Uh, I mean, you're wrong. I, I've been working for this party for the last two years and that large on the on the national committee uh i don't know what projects anybody's talking about that i finished or started and haven't finished i mean uh we worked really hard on the the lp everywhere campaign of course that was a full committee that worked on that um i, I like i said i'm the number one recruiter on on the lnc as far as new members um you know i fundraised more than a lot of the people on the lnc you know and, and so anybody that's saying that it, it either doesn't follow me or just has a, a chip on their shoulder i, I I have no reason. This doesn't boost my status <laughs> running for chair of the party. I mean, literally, you know, at most 15,000 people are going to know about me. So uh, it's, you know, I don't, I just don't, I don't even know how to answer that question, to be honest with you. Okay. I, is it, I, I see, I see an opportunity for our party to be more successful. I think I've laid down a blueprint that is proving to, to help the party be more successful uh, with results. And, and that's why I'm doing it. And, and there's no other reason. Uh, you know, I have a full-time job, a really nice full-time job. Uh, I, I make plenty of money. I have my, you know, my own place. I, I have a vehicle. I don't, I don't need to be funded. I don't need to ask the Libertarian Party to pay me uh, for this job. 
And so if anybody thinks that that's what I'm moving towards, they're just wrong. Okay, very good. And so that was the cringiest part that I wasn't looking forward to of this and even considered not doing it. But I wanted to give you guys a chance to answer these criticisms because they do exist. And like I said, for every criticism there was, there were more people saying, you know, how happy they were that you were in it and that they were supporting you. So uh, now we will do the uh, we will do the part where uh, each of you will ask um, the other debaters a question. Um, and I didn't really give a time limit, but I guess however long it takes for you to ask a question. And we will start with uh, Mike. If you want to ask, I guess, Todd first, and he can answer, and then ask uh, Joshua, and he can answer. All right. Thank you, Spike. So, Mr. Hogopian, <laughs> there must have been one final straw, right? Because you're thinking in your mind, I should run for their chair, and maybe you're not. You're, you're doubting, and yeah, I will, right? And then there's a moment where you're like, oh, my gosh, I've had enough. I'm running. So if you just think about whatever that thing was, what exactly do you plan on doing about that thing? Yeah. So that's a great question, Mike. Um, so, yes, I, you know, I had looked at, um, at vice chair potentially the last time around, didn't do it. Uh, I had thought about chair this time, but really I was looking at a local race and, and actually kind of getting excited about a local race. Um, but but it kept coming back. It kept coming back. People kept asking me. And, and at the end of the day, what did it was I got access to the financials of the party. And I'm a financial guy. Okay, I've run P&Ls that are um, 400 times as big as the Libertarian Party's P&L. Um, so I took a look at this P&L, and I could not believe what I saw. Um, and there is just things that we can do differently to, to get better financially, drive the overhead down, make better use of our dollars. 95% of the money, time, and effort in this party, 99 probably, is volunteer work. If people start seeing those dollars being used more efficiently and more effectively, they're willing to give more money and give more time and give more effort. And I believe that the first thing we have to do is trim that up, get that professionalized, and make sure that people understand that their money and their effort is going to be used as efficiently as and effectively as possible. And that's essentially what I do every day. And that's where that final straw, I guess, came in, Mike, is I just, you know, I looked at it and I said, I can, I can fix this. And I don't know if people want it fixed or not, but I can do it if that's what they want. Okay. And then uh, your question to Josh. My question? Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, your Josh. question. Is, yeah. So you've evolved. You've come around on bond immunity, and I really appreciate that. Um, what is one of the benefits you have found from the bot immunity campaign? Well, if I, if I'm being selfish, it's that no one's attacking me really anymore, which is nice. <laughs> uh, look, I, I've said this over and over and over again. At this point, I am going to work with anybody who wants to roll the state back in any area without advocating for, uh, adding more states somewhere else. And, and, you know, I've had problems with a lot of people in your camp. You've had a lot of problems with people in my camp, but I've also met people who are wonderful in your camp. And and I think that, um, you know, being able to work with the people in this party and being unified and, and is going to take us further than constantly pouring our swords inwards. And so, you know, I, I think it's been a good thing. I think, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the last year, a lot. Um, and, and I've talked to other unlikely people over the last year that, that, 
you know, called me all kinds of names last year. So, um, and I think it's great that we, we've been able to kind of at least find some common ground that we can work on things together. And so that's been the best part for me is, is knowing that we can be more successful, um, uh, driving together than we are going to be, you know, buttonheads all the time. That was so pretty. Um, Josh, yeah. Josh, so I know really, I'm glad that this is how this part's going because I was not, I did not enjoy the last part. Um, So uh, Josh, this is your time to ask questions uh, starting, I guess, with uh, Todd and then, and then with Mike. Sure. I, I'm, I'm probably not going to be as nice as Mike was, but I, I just have some serious issues that I want answered. So okay. Todd, you said you joined the, the national libertarian party in 2016. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I haven't looked at the, the roles, but I know that you just joined Oklahoma November 9th. Um, you have almost zero experience with the LP, no experience with L, uh, libertarian candidates or ballot drives or fundraising drives or initiative based coalitions or political lawsuits. Um, you don't know the names of our biggest donors. You've told me several times that you turn around businesses and, and have several times said that that's where you and I differ. But I have also helped rebrand businesses and turn them into successful profit machines, uh, including two big fine dining restaurants in Portland, Oregon, that now make quadruple what they did before my management and consulting. So I know from experience that leadership in a political party and fixing businesses are two very different things. Uh how how will you make the leap to leadership of a national political party without any experience in what it takes to run a political party? Yeah, so let me just first uh, correct one thing there. I said I joined the national party in 17. That's what it says on the card. So, oh. um, so I, I feel free to, I can send you that just so we can put it to bed. Right. Um, but everything else you said is fair, Josh, and it's going to be a fair criticism throughout this entire campaign. And what I would say is, all three of us have spent the last 10 years doing different things. And we've got a very different resume and different skill sets. Had I been doing the activism that you guys have been doing, I would not have been able to run an $800 million P&L. I would not be able to have 250 employees. I would not be able to move around three times in five years, move my family all across the country to take on new challenges because I would be so involved in the state campaigns. Now, now, so why didn't I get involved in Ohio? You know, well, I knew I was only going to be there for three years. Why didn't I get involved in Oklahoma right when I got here? Well, I was taking over a business that had two factories and 250 employees. And by the way, I did reach out to each of the three governor candidates prior to even moving to Oklahoma. Um, and, and then I ended up on TV with one of them. Um, doing an interview, and then I helped them with their 2019 campaign. So it's not exactly true to say I have not been involved in campaigns. In fact, I've been involved more in campaigns than I have with state parties, which is a very, very fair uh, criticism. And and But at the end of the day, turning around an organization is the same. And I understand people can say it's not. Every time I've ever taken over a company or an organization, what happens is I hear three things. One, everything's going okay. Two, that won't work here. And three, it's not going to be the same as what you did last time. Okay, those are the three things I hear every time. There's frameworks that you use. It's not the same mechanism. It's not always the same answer. There's frameworks that you apply. You do a lot of listening. You put them through the frameworks and you identify the problems and then you identify solutions. And more importantly, you put together a strategy. I mean, there's going to be differences between us, but... If you um, can just, if you can wrap up. Yeah. 
there's going to be differences between us, Josh. But but at the end of the day, I spent the last 10 years doing something different than you. And it's given me different skill set. Okay. Uh, and then, Josh, your question to Mike. Mike. So Spike's last question was kind of like my question. I think you clarified pretty well on the ideological stuff. But um, my concern with you is that you have spent a lot of time over the last you know, several years attacking people in the party. And I'd like to know how you plan to lead a party that has so many people that it feels like you vehemently hate so much. And if and how you're going to go about building inroads with uh, those people that you're going to have to be a leader of. All right. I think there were probably like, thank you for a great question. And it's an important one. So I'm not going to dodge it, but there were uh, like five different questions packed into one. So I'm just going to like stab in that general genre and hope something comes out that uh, resonates with the listener. Um, Probably the experience I can point to and that others can actually remember and look to is the way that I handled my duties as chair of Outright Libertarians. So when I became chair of Outright Libertarians, the organization was nearly bankrupt and our membership was ridiculously low. And basically, if you even said the word gay out loud, it was collectivism. And, you know, why don't you go back to the Democrats? And my sort of entire impulse behind all of the work that followed from that was taking kind of ownership of the responsibility that came with that job, right? The chair about like libertarians has to figure out how to transform the internal culture so that the party will actually stand behind its plank instead of pretending it didn't exist, right? And we were missing the opportunity. Gay marriage was at the front of uh, politics at the time. Anyway, um, by the time I was done as chair of that organization, yes, I had come into conflict with many things. I had discovered that paleo, I, the smoking gun was this article from 1990 in Liberty Magazine, Paleo Libertarianism. And we were all there. You remember the dominoes that fell and everything that I uncovered as I pushed through that path. But the important thing is that it was a struggle for individual liberty that led me to those barriers and that I had to overcome to succeed at the job that I had. And the fact that I accomplished that, as well as tripling membership and quadrupling fundraising for that organization, which is now one of the most successful and powerful caucuses in the party. And I hear that my time is up, so I'll just stop there. Ultimately, if you're not pissing people off, you're not fighting for liberty. And I don't know how to make that go away. Okay. Uh, and then now uh, it is Todd's turn. Uh, Todd, start with uh, your question to Mike, and then after that, your question to Josh. So start with your question to Mike. Sure. Well, I'm going to try to um, try to keep the positive campaign going that I've been uh, pledging to run here, Mike. And, and I've actually been extremely uh, satisfied and, and excited as I've started to do a little research on you and understand some of the stuff you've done. And I think with the audience listening today and the, and the different folks from the different caucuses and state parties, I think it'd just be good to give you some time to talk about how you grew that caucus so fast um, and just some of the methods you used. And I think we'd all benefit from hearing that. 
Well, what was the question again? Yeah, just sorry. talk more about what I was yeah. saying. No, yeah. talk talk more about the methods that you use to grow that so fast. I just want to hear about what you did, and I think that the audience would benefit from hearing some of those methods. Sure. Thank you for that chance. Actually, I love talking about how I actually do good work. So the first thing we observed is that the idea that gender and sexual minorities standing up for our own individuality was collectivism, was kind of like a primary, like that's, what do you say to that, right? Because the mainstream left is approaching those issues through a collectivist frame, right? So the first thing we did when we really sat down to figure out how do we overcome this by we, I mean, mostly me, but there were a few bo other board members at the time. We had a very small group of people to work with. And we took the non-aggression principle and we said, let's go through every way that the state is a source of coercive control over the lives of gender and sexual minorities and let's make a giant list of them. And we came up with this flyer called Get Your Laws Off Our Backs. And once you look at that, you're like, what do you say to that? And I remember going to the 2014 convention and um, we placed one of those at every one of the delegate seats and nobody really questioned it. There were a lot of people kind of looking away when they saw the thing, but a lot of other people took their copy and got so excited and ran up and was like, how can I get involved? I want a button. This is great. We've needed this for years. And that was really like the turning point is that we actually used libertarian theory to stand up for the individual. Go figure. You just have to flex what you already have. Um, the other thing we did is we took a favorite uh, outreach tool called the world's smallest political quiz. And we made something called the world's gayest political quiz. So we came up with five economic and five social questions that were about gender and sexual minority issues. And then we just gave that to people. Answer the questions. Surprise, you're a libertarian. And by the way, you're a libertarian that supports gender and sexual minority rights. And that converted a lot of people to both internally and it has been really successful for people at Pride Outreaches. So if my time is up and I yield the last second the last it was actually the the last negative 19 seconds but that's fine um so uh uh so todd your your question to josh yeah so josh same same type of thing you're obviously a prolific um recruiter within the party and i really appreciate that talk to us a little bit about some of the methods you use to to make that happen i know you travel a lot what's the most effective couple methods that folks who are listening can replicate so that we can get a lot more prolific recruiters definitely messaging i mean look because i've traveled so much for for you know my campaigns and this party and and uh, fundraising events and and the likes i've been able to and i said this last year put my finger on the pulse of the movement not just the party um there's way more libertarians that are outside of the party than there are inside the party I mean, wait, I mean, it's, it's not even close. You know, we have, we're finally back up over 15,000 national members right now, which is low. There's, you know, probably millions of small L libertarians around the country and they all want the same things. They want a, a principled, consistent messenger that's going to, you know, get in national media and, and say the things that they, they want changed. They, they want that anti-war message. They want the anti-drug -war, war message. They, they want to talk about the, the dangers of the federal reserve. You know, these are the things that. 
you know, people like Ron Paul and, and, uh, and Murray Sabrin and, and, you know, uh, Dave Smith and, and all these people that have been successful in the media at recruiting people to their causes have run on those same issues, you know, and, and there's no reason the libertarian party shouldn't take up the mantle of libertarian causes, plain and simple. And, and I think having, you know, having somebody on their side, uh, messaging the way that they feel uh, around the country is is really helping them to make that that uh, choice to make that leap to actually working inside the political sphere you know and I and another thing I think is um, you know there's a lot of libertarians that are anti-political system they don't want to work inside the political framework and I think I've been able to alleviate some fears by letting people know that this is just another tool in the toolbox of education um, we're not trying to get candidates into positions to gain power. We're trying to get uh, candidates into positions to relinquish power. And I think once you're as a libertarian, once you start thinking of the the political process that way, you start to realize that we're not the two old parties. We're not trying to come and take power. We're trying to get people into these positions to take the government boot off your head. And and that's really resonated with people around the country. And and I think that people want to get involved. Can, if they, you can just wrap up. Yeah. Obviously. And I think that's I think that's getting people involved. I really think that that's, you know, that's the best medicine for that is to is to be that principled messenger. Okay. Very good. Now, gentlemen, you have stopped asking questions. It's back to me to asking questions. We have gotten questions from quite a few people spanning across the ideological spectrum of libertarianism. I picked through them, combined some, distilled others to make what I believe is a broad representation of the questions that LP members have for you. Again, these are not all necessarily the opinion of Muddy Waters. A couple of them just straight up aren't, but they were asked quite a bit. I was going to go through the comments, but there are 17,000 comments, and so I'm just not even going to try. We have some good questions here, and we'll just go with those. Um, The first question. First question, straight up. This is not... I'm giving you on these other ones three minutes to discuss it between you. This one is straight up. Yes or no answer, and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Waffle House or IHOP, Todd. Waffle House. Mike. Waffle House, but you said it was a yes or no question. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is a Waffle House or IHOP question. Good catch. So Waffle so, House. Yes. Waffle. Yes, Waffle House. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Joshua, yes or no, Waffle House or IHOP? It, what? No, yeah, Waffle, uh, yes. Waffle, House, Waffle House or IHOP. Here's the thing, though. No. Definitely Waffle House. Okay. But I've been Waffle House no. all over the country. Nah. And if I walk into a Waffle House and the, and the table is not already greasy, I'm leaving. That's actually also true. So you all got that right, and so you will be allowed to continue. Um, the next question, we'll actually we'll do a, a discussion. I've never done one of these before, so I think I'm going to let you guys talk. If I feel like people aren't getting a chance, I might interject with some broadening of the question not 100% sure how this is going to work but we're going to do it all together in the spirit of brotherhood uh so uh, the first actual question is uh how do you define libertarianism go at it <laughs> any all of you this is this is a broad discussion it's everybody and I, and i think you know some of us we've already touched on it but i would just say you know, from a real high level, when I'm trying to talk to somebody who doesn't know what the party stands for, and I'm trying to get them to understand whether or not they should even take the next step to look into the party, I say, 
uh, dramatic military reform, anti-war. Dramatic criminal justice reform, no crimes without victims. Dramatic fiscal reform, less taxes and dramatically less spending. Um, at the end of the day, if you believe those three things, I believe there's room for you in this party, or you should at least take the next step and start diving into the 34 planks and figure out where you stand. Okay. Uh, Mike or Josh, anything to add to that? What does, and, and the original question is, what is libertarianism? How do you define libertarianism? So I'll, I'll just speak. So when I hear that question, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, I wonder if the L is capitalized or not. And so I suppose it's since I'm running for a chair of the capital L party, I should answer as if the L had been capitalized. So I'll just share kind of a, a an insight that I had when I was reviewing the bylaws to prep for this debate. And the number one statement underneath like what the purpose for this party is is to manifest a libertarian political entity that is separate and distinct from all other political parties and movements right so political parties and movements so for me that separate and distinct i think it almost comes back to that sense of like kind of solidarity that we have is that we aren't you know the right-wing voluntarist non-voter we aren't the radical anarchists left. We aren't independent political centrists. We're all of that and more. And so what the liberal, what it's like to be a capital L libertarian is separate and distinct from what it means to either be a small L libertarian or just a, a politically disaffected person. So I do have to defer to the founding documents here as the chairperson, um, the responsibility is to stand on the platform as it is written, to stand on the statement of principles as it is written. And those documents are very well, you know, defined and written. Um, I'll, I'll just say that I think those are beautiful documents. I, I love what they say. So anybody who is not familiar, you can go to lp.org slash platform and read that. Um, but it comes down to, you know, personal responsibility, self-determination, um, things like that. Just foundational principles that empower the individual. So okay. that's my answer. Josh, uh, you want to finish up here with your how you define libertarianism? Small L sure. or large L, however you want to. You all, I, yeah, I, think you ha I think you have to separate them as far as the party goes. Uh, that platform, while great in most aspects, uh, is not set in stone. You know, the, this this party shows up, uh, uh, belongs to whoever shows up. You know, you have the opportunity to become a delegate, show up to the national convention, put forth platform proposals, and have them voted on at the national convention. So we can't we can't say that the party and the movement are one and the same all the time uh, because it can be changed at any mo at any given two years. It can be changed, and so uh, I think as far as libertarianism goes, it, you know, it's basic it's it's not a, it's the non-aggression principle you know it's it's extremely basic it's don't hurt people and don't take their stuff and that's a bumper sticker uh slogan but it's the truth you know don't hurt people and don't take their stuff and um and you know they shouldn't do those same things to you it's the it's the golden rule it's the thing that we teach our our children uh, from a very young age it's basic human decency and so um, I think that that's the basis of, of libertarianism. And then we move to the party and it's the platform. It's in the, you know, and all of our platform planks are written with that 
that philosophy in mind. And, and so I think it does a really good job. But like I said, it could change. It could change any given two years. So you have to separate the two when you're talking about what this is. Okay, very good. Uh, next question. I was not originally going to get into specific questions about specific groups or, or people or anything else. This question got asked so many times that I feel like I would be doing a disservice to my followers for not asking it. It was asked almost verbatim like a lot of times. Um, and so I, I feel like I need to address it. Um, the uh, Mises Caucus, this is the question. The Mises Caucus has an entire plank in its platform condemning identity politics uh, and then uh, seemingly played the race card when anyone was criticizing Maj during that whole debacle. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'll take the lead on that, obviously. <laughs> uh, I don't think that it's just the the Mises Caucus that thought there that it seemed like a you know a get the black guy situation. That's what it felt like. It's what it felt like to a lot of us. You know, it, it was it was a big group of mainly white people coming after a black guy and removing him as the keynote because they didn't like how he spoke. I, I mean, I get it. I get the anger on their side from from you know. But but if we're just talking about pure optics, there's a lot of people that felt that it looked that way. I mean, Mike Shipley even said it. He feels like it kind of looked that way, you know. And uh, so I can't speak for everybody. And I actually I didn't make a big fuss about the Maj thing. I tried to stay mostly out of it and neutral. I understood where people were coming from on both sides. I also thought it was handled really badly on both sides. Right. Um, so I can't I can't say what other people are thinking. Um, but but I know that the Mises Caucus, you know, they reject identity politics. They do mostly. Um, but you know, if they felt someone was being wronged, uh, or if somebody in the caucus felt that someone was being wronged due to their race, they're probably going to stay still say something. You know, but um, I I don't think it was about race. I don't. I've never felt really that it was about race. I just thought optically it looked really bad. So. Okay. Mike, did you feel that it was racially motivated, the, the, the push against Maj? No. No, I think that I just feel like – so the aspect of it that manifests as, as a racialized issue is just that the party as a whole – and, it, you know, it was, was it, John, it was John McAfee who stood on the stage and said, look around and see how many white faces you see in here. Shame on you. And – oh, it's an identity politics and we don't really have to deal with that. But like, I think in our heart of hearts, you know, when you look around and that's actually true, you wonder what are we doing that is causing disproportional underrepresentation of, you know, people who don't look like us, right? right. That is something that needs to be addressed. So uh, I want to touch on the identity politics thing though, because this, uh, I, I would not be true to outright in my roots as having to challenge that whole thing, but identity is inherent, an inherent um, aspect of the individual experience, right? So if I'm a gender and sexual minority person, my life is shaped partly by my experience of coming into conflict with authoritarian structures that are trying to limit my individual expression of who that aspect of myself is. Right. So to a certain extent, I feel like, I don't know if I was starting a caucus, I wouldn't put a clank, plank in it that rejected identity politics if I was an individualist party. So I wonder if maybe there's some conclusions to be drawn there. Um, but that's not my, my mess to clean up. But ultimately, 
it's not that it was racially motivated per se. It's that there was a racialized aspect to what was happening to Maj. And that part is true. Okay. Uh, Todd thoughts on, uh, on the, uh, I guess the, if, if you felt like there was a racial aspect to what happened with Maj. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, the Mises caucus does some amazing things. I, I mean, we, they're prolific fundraisers. We, we love what the Mises caucus does. Um, do I think that that was a hypocritical um, reaction? No, I don't, because I think identity politics is normal when you actually feel that that something might be happening um, due to somebody's identity. And and you know, and I kind of agree with Mike. I don't think it should probably be in there anyway, because we should be calling that out as a as a civil liberties party when somebody is is potentially being uh, targeted. For, for a civil rights or, or for who they are. I think that's a big deal. Was it racially motivated? I don't think it was outwardly racially motivated, but to Mike's point, I think um, just like we see in police forces and just like we see in police brutality, there are uh, dozens and dozens of studies that show that people react differently when minorities are involved. Do I think that he would have been kicked out in the manner that he was if he wasn't a minority? I don't know, um, but it was so dramatic and the reaction was so dramatic that it does make you think uh, especially coming from a party who has so low minority representation so it was it wrong to point it out no i don't think so i think i think it's a discussion we have to have if we want to grow okay very good and uh so this next question again combining lots of different basically the same question i combined like about 30 different trolley problems into a question uh, for, for this one. Uh, but uh, so this question was, uh, I'm very interested to see how, how this goes. Uh, and by interested, I mean mildly horrified. Uh, but the question was, is rent theft? And if so, do you plan to buy a home every time you go somewhere on vacation or just squat on someone's porch? <laughs> so I'll assume that when the person- It's for everyone. Was- it's for everyone. But, but I, I think they wanted to know what you had to say. All right. So here's the thing. Slogans like that work really well, just like taxation is theft um, because they grab attention. Okay. And that is the whole point of wanting to get attention. But just like with taxation, right? There might be a case where if there's a toll bridge, I might want to cross that. Is it possible that I would pay a voluntary user fee to my municipality? I don't know. I suppose it's possible, right? And I think the same thing with rent, right? So we're looking at a marketplace where the state controls the supply of land titles. And because that supply is restricted by the state, its value is inflated. And so we have a system of landlordism built on those distorted values. So I think that in a market set free, the circumstances would be very, very, very different. But in that circumstance, I can see myself traveling, going to a convention so I can come meet you and shake your hand, right? I'm not going to buy a house. I may choose to visit an Airbnb. Is that an inherently exploitative dynamic? Probably not. So I think there's a lot of nuance behind the hashtag. And what's important about the hashtag is opening up the door to that conversation so we can get to the nuance. Okay. Uh, Joshua, thoughts on rent being theft and I guess trolley problems in general? I don't believe that rent is theft. Um, I think, I think that the government shouldn't own land titles. 
I mean, obviously. So I think that's where the big breakdown between Mike and I was for a long time. Um, I, I think if you have a house and you want to rent it out to somebody, you should perfectly, perfectly able to do so. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think it, 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 I guess if it's some kind of eye catching hashtag, that's cool, but, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Todd, uh, thoughts on rent squatting trolleys. Uh, and I, I I'm not going to try to create a terrible, uh, trolley problem for all of you to, uh, solve after this, but go ahead, Todd. Yeah, no, as a, as a former landlord, I would say that rent is most certainly not theft. You know, that your property rights, um, property rights are important. If you want to buy property and make money off of that property, you should be able to do so. And in fact, if you understand economics as, as property values go up and down, rent fluctuates as well to take care of people and to, and to the free market allow, or the, the what, however free it is, market allows rent to to be adjusted so that people can afford to live during downtrends and uptrends in the market so no rent is not theft okay very good and i could not come up with a good one i've had an idea where there would be three people on one side on the fourth <laughs> side every fifth person would have the cure to cancer and but it just got complex so i'm just gonna i'm gonna leave that out um okay so Here's a here's more of a of a, a specifics in the in the weeds question about uh, the Libertarian Party budget. What changes would you make to the Libertarian Party budget, if any? Uh, well, I okay. So I'm I'm going to unpack some things here. The current Libertarian budget has been balanced uh, for the first time in many LNCs. What was that? <laughs> uh, but the 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 problem is is that some people on the LNC have decided that the budget needs to be so tight. There's n- no room for any unexpected. Um, there's no budget line for unexpected things, and that's why we're currently working on a motion to uh, expend some more funds so that Jess Mears doesn't freeze to death at the headquarters in Washington. And yes, that's the fourth time I've mentioned the AC issue. So please donate to Josh Smith. Uh, lp.com that's actually for the party not for me uh, it's my personalized link uh, we have to be ready for anything that comes up all the time and so I, I think that having some kind of um, discretionary budget for any kind of emergency is really important but here's the thing the budget is actually and I, I wanted to talk to Todd about this before we did this debate the budget is actually made created by Tim Hagen the treasurer um, it's voted on and approved by the entire LNC. The chair really doesn't, I mean, the chair can say, Hey, let's work on some things here and there, but the chair doesn't make the budget. The chair doesn't approve the budget. Uh, the, the treasurer does. And then, and then the, uh, the LNC votes on what to put on there and how to approve it. So it's really up to the LNC, but I just think that we do need some kind of discretionary fund where we, if some kind of emergency happens, we're able to, to take care of it. Like a, like an HVAC that breaks. Um, like an HVAC that breaks and freezes Jess Mears to death. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Hashtag save Jess Mears. Uh, Todd, thoughts on the budget? Yeah, so let me just respond to that first. So uh, I get it, Josh. I get who makes the budget and who approves the budget. Uh, when I'm the president of a company, I'm not the one out selling. I'm not the one buying supplies from my vendors. Uh, but when my uh, supply chain director does something wrong, I get involved. When my VP of sales isn't selling enough, 
I get involved. When my controller has audit issues, I get involved. Uh, as a chair, as a as a leader of an organization, it's a responsibility to get involved when things are not going right. You can't just say we're we're you know well I'm one vote out of several and and this guy makes the budget. Um, this this the thing. You've got issues in the budget right now where you are spending more money on a certain type of fundraising than you are bringing in. That is negative ROI on that fundraising line item. Okay, there are other ones where you're spending money and you're making a ton of ROI. So what we need to do is understand how to put those dollars so that we get the most effectiveness out of every dollar. I, I use in business, I always talk about this. We guys, we got to make as much money as we can every single minute of the day. And it sounds enormously capitalistic, but the point is, is I've got four kids at home. You know, I want to go home. I want to spend time with my kids. I don't want to sit here for five extra hours and not make any more money. Let's just do our job, make as much money as we can, be as effective and efficient as possible, and and drive as much to the PL as possible, and then go home and have fun with our families. So, so to to the point here is there are areas in the PL that need to be improved. That will improve the cash flow that you're talking about, Josh, where now suddenly you have enough extra income um, to cover emergencies. And on top of that, if I had to change one thing in the entire budget after this whole thing gets fixed, I would actually make a full-time chair. And I'm not talking about me at this point. I'll hand it over to somebody else. But I would make a full-time chair so this person can be out there promoting liberty on a full-time basis and really driving this party forward. If we want to be a true second party in this country, we need that. That is the next step. And it can only happen once we clean up the p Okay. Uh, Mike, thoughts on budget changes or anything like that? Thank you, Spike. So I think Josh had the advantage on this one because he has the misfortune of currently sitting on the LNC and probably having had to live through more budget discussions. Um, then Mike, any... we just had, we just had our budget meeting last week and in Miami. So, <laughs> um, you know, but I'm excited for the fact that that is an aspect of my job. But, uh, what I want to talk about, um, because I have not been able to sit through those with you, um, is a bigger concept here, right? So central planning doesn't work. We already know that that is basically our central critique of statism itself. And what's especially a vulnerability about politics is that when we begin to have to manage scarce resources, the question of how to expenditure them becomes politicized, right? And all of a sudden, what we're going to have a faction war over whether Jess gets air conditioning or not. Like, uh, eventually that's what happens. But there's an even bigger vulnerability than just us squabbling over resources and having them become proxies for internal, you know, struggles for social capital, um, is that when the governing body begins to feel more and more pressure to like figure out how to pay the bills, they become more and more tempted to turn to large donors who can fix that problem quickly. And so one of the things I can say as the chair, right, because that's a vulnerability. We already know that money in politics, when you're chasing the larger donors, sooner or later, they've got their hooks in you and you're bought and paid for. So what I could say is that as the chair, one of the things 
You know, there was this really cool hashtag campaign on Twitter. Uh, it was called Clear the Lists. And this was when school was going back. And basically, teachers were like, they didn't have the money they needed for like uh, pencils and stuff. So they all created Amazon wish lists. And they did this Clear the Lists hashtag campaign to decentralize and volunteerize um, the funding, the meeting of the like funding gap in the schools, right? And so it was all exciting. And people would like buy these pencils and, you know, notebooks and, backpacks or whatever the teachers had put on their list and then they'd like post. So my point is I would lean into our organizational strength of decentralization and appeal to that desire and put it out there. What do we need that someone can buy right now that would actually benefit the party so that we don't have to fight over these resources so that the bigger budget items can be handled on the resources that we have. And I think that's one of the best ways that the chair can help with this problem without um it turning into you know something worse okay very good and then the final question from the uh from the followers uh is uh, how do you plan to win the hearts and minds of libertarians and libertarian leaning voters who get drawn in by decidedly non-libertarian candidates politicians like donald trump Tulsi Gabbard and Lincoln Chafee. Wait, what? One more time. <laughs> uh, how do you plan to win the hearts and minds of libertarians and libertarian-leaning voters who get drawn in, uh, who, as of right now, are getting drawn in by decidedly non-libertarian politicians such as Trump and Tulsi Gabbard and Lincoln Chafee? Hmm. Uh, what, here's the thing. I, I know there's a lot of libertarians pulling for Tulsi and I think that that is directly because of the anti-war message. You know, if, if, if we're going to have a Democrat on a debate stage debating, we want an anti-war Democrat up there debating period, plain and simple. It's, it, it's for the last four years, it, it feels like the anti-war left has gone to sleep. So it's nice to see a democratic, uh, presidential hopeful talking about anti-war issues and pardoning Assange and Snowden and, and right. these libertarian issues. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when it comes down to it, we're still the more principled option. Uh, we have all of those views plus these other ones that you support. And so, you know, it just comes down to that messaging again. You have to stay consistent in your principles and, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe that we're going to get any of the, the MAGA, Trump guys over to our side. Uh, they are so caught up in the, uh, uh, that's, you know, tribalistic chess beating team sport politics that they just don't care anymore. But there's, like I said, there's 61% of the population that didn't vote for a presidential candidate in 2016. You know, that's, that's my focus. Those are the people I want to know why you're jaded on the political system and what are you looking for uh, as far as the, your hopes and change for, for the country. And I think that's where our, our best fishing ground is. Okay. Mike, thoughts on pulling uh, libertarians and libertarian leaners away from the siren song of authoritarian politicians? Sure. So it's kind of, I'm glad you brought that up because I have, um, I have a friend who is also my stylist and so I sit in her chair once a week and she's always interested in hearing about like what I'm doing. And she is a progressive Democrat. And over uh, the months and years, 
Um, she has really developed like she the way that I analyze kind of power and, and and what's going on has sunken into her. And she said something really that struck me. She said, you know, this impeachment trial, I feel like they're making Trump into a patsy. It's not that he didn't do corruption. It's that corruption didn't start with him. Um, and that corruption actually goes back um you know, to Reagan and beyond, you know, it's a bipartisan problem and we're never going to get justice from a partisan inquiry that limits itself to Trump. They're basically going to package him as the, the source of the corruption and right. wad him up and, and spit him away mm -hmm. and then go, Oh, look, Washington's cleaned up now. Right. So where I'm going with this is that um, my experience from social media shows me that whenever you attack like the duopoly, like both of them at once, you like that is the content that consistently goes wild and reaches beyond libertarian spaces because you can go in the back in the insights and see whether it was fans or non-fans who viewed that and that's the content that consistently reaches non-fans of your page which are potential libertarians right. so i have this idea to do like an impeach the duopoly push so we would flip the impeachment narrative and we would turn it like away well not away from trump like you know he made his own bed and he gets to lie in it too, right? right? But the bed is bigger than him and they all really need to lie in that bed. So I think we can get a lot of election year traction out of an impeach the duopoly hashtag campaign. Our candidates can run with that. It'll be viral in every way. You can call it all kinds of corruption. And it's just a great way to kind of build on the bottom unity that we have because who doesn't hate either Democrats or Republicans and usually both, right? So I think it's a great way to reach disaffected voters and, and provide them with a libertarian analysis that says, hey, all of these people are corrupt and maybe you should give us a try. Okay. Todd, thoughts on the libertarian and libertarian-leading voters keeping them away from the authoritarians, bringing them into the fold of libertarians? Sure. So first of all, I love a lot of what I just heard. I think, though, we need to get extremely targeted on who we are going to target. And this is what I mean. If you understand the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, you'll understand that 80% of the effect comes from 20% of the causes. How does that apply to voting? So there are 20% of the population right now that will even consider voting libertarian. Yet we spend all this time trying to convince status, trying to convince you know, MAGA, trying to convince authoritarians to come over to our party. Stop it. That's not going to work. Let's focus on the 20% of people that are most likely to become a libertarian and spend all of our time converting those folks. Who are those folks? They're the folks, to Josh's point, that did not vote. There's a ton of people out there that did not vote. We had to focus on two things. And I got this from a white paper, so I didn't make it up. But we have to focus on two things. We have to raise the willingness to vote of these non-voters. And we have to lower the cost of the vote for these non-voters. And if we focus on those two things, we will use our money more effectively to drive votes. We will focus on the 20% of people who are willing to actually consider the party and will drive their willingness to vote up. And it's 100 times easier to convert a non-voter than it is to convert an authoritarian. So the answer to your question is don't try to convert the authoritarian. Focus on the right people and we will be 100 times more effective. Okay, fair enough. Well, that is the end of the questions, guys. And uh, because I didn't wasn't able to come up with an effective trolley problem, 
uh, we are going to move on to the final section, which is the closing remarks. I have completely forgotten who was... Does anyone remember who was the last person to... Anyway, we'll start with Todd giving his closing, uh, his final closing remarks. Uh, Todd, you have two minutes to be a closer. <laughs> uh, thank you. So I really appreciate being here. I really appreciate sharing the um, the cast with with these folks. These guys are great. Um, just to touch back on a little bit of the concern about me, and and I, it's fair. It's a hundred percent fair criticism about whether or not I've been involved in the county or the national scene. What I will say is, guys, I, I have 50 million impressions a year. I have 30,000 Twitter followers. I got those folks from talking about liberty every day. The people who do listen to what I say know that I'm a libertarian. If you don't, please check me out. Give me a call. I am accessible. I, I have several calls today with libertarians. Um, and prominent members of the party. I am trying to get to know you folks, and I want to get to know you. Like me or not, let's get on the phone. Uh, at the end of the day, this is what it is. Um, we've got some great candidates here who understand uh, what to do as chair. If you believe the Libertarian Party is headed in the right direction, at the right pace, with the right trajectory, there are folks that are on the board or folks that have been involved that you can vote for. If you believe, though, that a turnaround is necessary and there is a very specific skill set that goes into turning around an organization, I know how to do this. I've done it several times. I've done it in businesses 400 times as big as the LNC. I can do this and then I can hand it off to the person who can take it to the next level. If you don't want to turn around, I'm not your guy. I'm going to be unhappy. You're going to be unhappy. Don't vote for me, please. But if you are looking for this party to be turned around financially, be professionalized, create that core branded message and win local elections, put a full time chair in place and then hand it off to somebody, then I'm your guy. I appreciate it. OK, very good. Mike, uh, your final two minutes uh, to close the uh, the audience here. Thanks, Spike. So. I think the I. <laughs> First of all, we forgot to plan a closer, so suddenly if I begin to ramble, I'm sorry, you can hashtag my comments wall text later. Okay. But uh, I'm just going to lean into, um, you know, the spirit of decentralization and bottom-up organizing, uh, because I think it's it can't be underestimated what a specialized actual skill that is, because the examples that we have most you know, if you go to management school or any of these things, you're going to be taught a top-down paradigm. The the ordinary world operates on top-down central planning logic, and that isn't what libertarianism advocates. We don't advocate it for the political system, and our party itself is not built that way. It's built um, around the concept of an empowered individual who is autonomous over their own freedom, right? And so organizing in that context is not easy right because you're you're bringing ideas and you're sort of like facilitating like bringing those ideas to life but you're not actually telling anybody what to do because the minute you tell a libertarian what to do they won't do it right so that's kind of like a paradox that is not easy to 
like figure out when you first start organizing. It's it's an acquired skill that I learned by trial and error. So I think if you're looking for someone who understands that bottom-up perspective, someone who has experience facilitating and bringing big ideas to life within the boundaries of, of what that means, then you need someone with demonstrated experience who is deeply familiar with this party's culture and its bylaws and its structure and everything else. And that person is me. So I just hope that you'll continue to keep an open mind, those of you who are out there and still hate me. Um, and those of you who don't hate me, thank you for not hating me. And I just hope that I can continue to earn your respect. Thank you. Okay. Very good. Joshua, coffee is for closers. Give us you're, your you're closing damn, you're two damn right. You're damn right. Second place is you're fired. Yeah, exactly. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> look, I ran last year on a platform of promises. I had no meat to point to. I had no successes to point to. I was constantly arguing with people. I was bad at taking criticism. I, I did a lot of things wrong. I did. And I spent the last two years learning. I spent the last two years watching people who have had successes. I spent the last two years working with uh, um, campaign managers and, and candidates and the, the national party and the local party and the state party and the platform committee and the operations committee and the affiliate support committee. And I learned everything I possibly could because I was told you don't have the experience that we want to see in a chair of the Libertarian Party. This year... I have meat to point to. I can show that those plans, those promises, those goals are working. I can show you the hundreds and hundreds of people that I've signed up around the country to the party that are now working with their local and, and state affiliates. I can show you the over 100 members that I've got to join up with National just since uh, July of this, of this year. Um, I, I meant every single word I said in 2018. I just didn't. I didn't know how to convey that message correctly. And I think that this year uh, I, I have the opportunity to do that. And, and I hope that everyone will look at the stuff that I've been able to accomplish and take that into account when we go into national convention in May in 2020. And, and that's all I have to say. I appreciate you guys for coming out. I appreciate Spike for having us on. Okay. Very good. Thank you guys again. Be sure to stay. Uh, I need you guys to stay tuned because we're just wrapping up and I'll talk to you during the uh, outro. Thank you again, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. And folks, thank you. My amazing, lovely, beautiful. Did you lose weight? I could tell you lost weight. Our viewing audience for tuning in tonight. Uh, and now it's time. It's up to you to decide who was the master debater. Uh, so be sure to comment with the name of who you think won tonight's debate and, uh, share this video with others over the next 24 hours so they can watch it too and say who they think won. Uh, and uh, we will tally the results and then uh, release them tomorrow night. Uh, but So we hope that you enjoyed this. Uh, next week, tune in for a very special Monday edition of My Fellow Americans, uh, where I will be live interviewing my next guest, famous tycoon, crypto enthusiast, presidential candidate, and all-around badass, John McAfee. Uh, if you have a question for John, let us know here at Muddy Waters Media, and tune in live on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, to watch me and John live right here and then tune in on Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's news with the reverence and good cheer of the sweet autumn cherubs that we are. 
all of that right here on Muddy Waters Media. Uh, also, a bit of housekeeping. Anyone who bought during the show the uh, Muddied Waters brand egg timer, uh, we will actually be sending you a digital timer with a sticker on it. Same price, $49.99. Uh, this does not work. Um, so we're not going to send that to you. Um, and I'm going to get this returned. But uh, we will send you a digital, same sticker, digital egg timer, $49.99. Great deal. Can't pass up on it. Uh, and uh, so, guys, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, be sure to share this so we can find out who the true master debater is. And if you haven't done so yet and are still able to do so, I don't know what state you live in, be sure to sign up as a delegate for your state party so that you can not just vote here in comments, which ultimately achieves nothing, but actually can go to the convention and choose the actual who will be the next chair and who will be the next presidential and vice presidential candidate while you're there. Might as well do it while you're there. Guys, thanks again for tuning in. We will see you next week. And God bless you.